Hi everyone, thanks for tuning into episode 7 of Jack's Viral Podcast and well done for nailing lockdown and staying home so far. Uh, we actually did a Twitter poll this week to find out what you lot are going to do first once we're all set free again. And guess what came out top? It was going to the pub. Almost half of you said that's what you were looking forward to. Hugging everyone was in there as well and seeing your other halves. It has been a long four weeks, hasn't it? Anyway, we've got all sorts coming up in this podcast. From how kids and staff should be protected once the schools go back, a furlough exchange scheme in Oxford, some free holidays for NHS workers and how Oxfordshire's space industry is responding to the crisis. Let's start with Lucy Coleman. She's a primary teacher in Kidlington. Uh, she's also the president of the National Education Union's Oxfordshire branch. No date's been set yet for when classrooms will reopen, but I chatted to her about life in schools after lockdown and what that might look like. I know that a lot of teachers and a lot of staff in schools were feeling quite anxious about some of the reports that were coming out earlier in the week about schools reopening you know, very soon um, because we know for a fact that it's very hard to socially distance when you're working with children, particularly young children. And um, it's, you know, it's it's really, uh, you can't keep them two metres apart. And so I know that lots of teachers were reassured by the letter that was sent out by the National Education Union that said that before schools reopen we need a clear plan of the testing and PPE and making sure that schools are cleaned thoroughly because it's just impossible to keep children apart we need to know that the children aren't exposed to the coronavirus or that staff coming into the building haven't been exposed to it either. For those that are at home students that are at home and maybe their parents are trying to sort of think of ways to keep the learning going at the moment while they're sort of stuck inside. Are you worried at all that by the time they, they can come back to classes, which, you know, might be after the summer, that there will be a sort of a need to kind of play catch up? Well, I think um, for, from all the most of the teachers and the support staff that I've spoken to, our priority really is keeping the children safe and well and looking after their needs in terms of their emotional well-being. Um, and actually, you know, the activities that we've been sending home are project-based, so the children can complete those at their own pace. And if parents are working from home, there's a bit of flexibility in, in what we're asking them to do. And I think a lot of schools have gone down that route, and I think that that's the right way to go because this isn't normal for anyone. And when, when we say that children are behind, that everybody's going to be behind, you know, we're all in the same position. In fact, worldwide, everybody's in the same position. Yes, there might be some gaps in their academic learning, but we can make up for those. I wanted to know what you thought about what maybe should change in schools in terms of any personal protective equipment or hand sanitizers or sort of just generally health and safety. Do you think things should be a bit different once schools go back? Yeah, I, I think the really important thing is that the government get a clear testing programme so that we can check whether staff or children have been exposed to the virus and do the contact tracing. Um, and in terms of the personal protective equipment, you know, the priority is that that goes to NHS staff and care workers. But there will need, also need to be some thought that goes into what protective equipment is needed in schools, particularly for 
children that have um, special educational needs and for staff that might be doing more of the care in, and, and younger children. And I think the really important thing is making sure that there are clear um, cleaning protocols in place. And at the moment, I know that before the um, schools were closed, there, a lot of schools don't have enough sinks. Um, a lot of schools weren't getting enough soap. And that was you know, a real challenge, trying to get all of the children to wash their hands so regularly, because actually there aren't enough sinks and there aren't enough soap and there isn't enough space for children to be washing their hands all the time. And I think it's really important that when we go back that we really sort of take a long hard look at what is important in for, for our children's education and definitely you know children's personal hygiene and, and keeping them safe it has got to be a priority in in all areas of the curriculum and also it's going to be really important to to help children through these times by helping them to talk about what's happened share their worries and concerns now to a local charity which is making up to 70 meals a day every day to keep homeless people in Oxford fed during the outbreak. ACT Oxford has been given some cash from the Oxfordshire Community Foundation. Here is Jo Mitchell, she's the fundraising and communication manager, chatting to Emma from News. One of our big focus areas is alleviating hunger. So as rough sleepers get housed in temporary accommodation, um, they still need help in terms of regular meals because they don't have access to anywhere to cook necessarily. So we've got a team, an ACT team, um, who are cooking 60 to 70 meals a day, seven days a week, um, to keep people fed. Um, that team is wonderful. It's made up of um, staff, um, volunteers, so that includes all kinds of people like teachers, teenagers, um, business people, and um, then some people from the ACT community who themselves were rough sleepers, for example, all working together in the kitchen, um, making food that's hot, that's nutritious, and that's full of protein, carbs, and vitamins. And then we distribute it centrally, just outside St Aldate's Church every day. Have you had to change the way that you work during lockdown? So normally the the food provision that we would do, we would have these meals um, once a month for a big community meal or on the Monday night dinner for a smaller group of people um, on Pembroke Street. Um, so the food provisions changed. We also, um, the support that we give people who live in the houses that we run has also had to change. So where that would be very face-to-face with lots of meetings and mentoring sessions, time together, that now has been done remotely. Um, so that was a challenge in itself because um, the ACT team have desktop computers in our office on Pembroke Street, but um, we didn't have access to computers for all the staff of the small team. Um, but we've had a wonderful grant from the Oxfordshire Community Foundation that's helped buy laptops for staff members who were working from their phones, which means now they can give all kinds of support um, to the people that are living in the houses at a time when people are feeling really cut off and under pressure. So that's been an amazing contribution. How helpful is this contribution at the moment? We know that plenty of people who support us regularly have already lost their jobs or taken big pay cuts, and we know that they're going to need to stop giving. Uh, We're also not in a position to run fundraising events that we would normally like the big gala dinner that we have once a year in the auction. Um, But we're really um, amazed by the level of support and encouragement of what we're doing from the public in Oxford um, and also from funders. 
that I've actually worked in fundraising for more than 15 years um, and I've been really moved um, in this time of coronavirus by how responsive and supportive funders have been. So um, a really good example is the Oxfordshire Community Foundation. Um, I think that people across the country have been donating to the National Emergencies Trust coronavirus appeal and some of that money has gone into the Oxfordshire Community Foundation's Resilience Fund and they've already um, made us a generous grant that pays for the next two months of our emergency food provision and then they paid for these laptops as well and um, that's been really helpful because it actually means that we, we hope um, we won't need to furlough anyone from the small act team um, so everyone can keep supporting Oxford's homeless community and people being released from prison at a time that's so difficult so that's just wonderful news. So sticking with food deliveries for the vulnerable, there's also a charity in North Oxfordshire called the Chippy Larder. It's operating out of the now closed Chipping Norton Leisure Centre and delivers surplus food from supermarkets with a bit of a blast from the past because even David Cameron, the former Prime Minister, has been getting involved and helping out. John Busby is part of it and here he is speaking to our reporter, Alex. So it was originally an idea of the local councillor, Rosvana Paul. She wanted to set up a food subscription service offering discounted food parcels to local people in need. Um, she worked with the local supermarkets in the region to collect surplus food that would normally otherwise go to landfill. Um, this scheme operated for two weeks prior to the government closing down leisure centres, and it's a weekly scheme. And she approached Better and the Ship and Northern Leisure Centre to use it as a as a hub. Once the government advice came then it went from being what was really a low-paid subscription to offering it for free, and it was it's now being subsidised by um, funding that Rosanna's managed to obtain. So we are encouraging donations of £2 for those that can afford it, but it's basically... Um, escalated from there so to start off with we had 86 people a week uh, six volunteers to this current week 450 food parcels 35 volunteers um so you know there's significant growth during this lockdown period where people's financial situations and people have become shielded and more vulnerable and as I say, it's, uh, it's escalated quite quickly from there. So, so you're doing these deliveries. So what, what are you guys uh, actually delivering? What they get is they get a 20-item food parcel box, which can have a range of stuff in it from tin tomatoes or cereals, um, little snacks, crisps. Um, plus, they get a bag of fruit and veg. Um so, you know, this week's bags have got bananas, raspberries, mangoes, carrots, potatoes. Um, so, yeah, they get a 20-item food box and a bag of fruit and veg every Friday. You know, people have been very, very grateful that there's such a scheme in their area that can help them through these difficult times. And I hear you've had a helping hand from a famous face. Is David Cameron involved? Yes, he's a volunteer delivery driver. Um, you know, it, to be to be fair, he doesn't want any recognition. He doesn't want any publicity. He's not, you know, looking to get any gain. He, you know, he very much wants to be under the radar and 
you know, do his bit for, for an area of the country where he resides and, you know, he can make an impact. So um, we're probably unique in the sense we have an ex-Prime Minister helping in our, our army of volunteers. It's fantastic, really. Now over to Cullum, where an engineer from the UK Atomic Energy Authority has joined the efforts to create new PPE. He's helped to set up a pop-up production line for face shields in less than a week. This is Emil Jonasson. What we ended up doing was we used a, a 3D printer design from a Czech 3D printing company, which they had designed in collaboration with their help, um, their health service. And then he shared that design online. Because the nice thing about 3D printing is you can you can just email the instructions for how your printer makes something to someone else. You can just, you know, download it from the internet. Mm, for me, if 3D printing still seems something that's just a bit sort of futuristic. I've never, yeah. <laughs> I've never been able to actually witness one in action. But obviously, recently, I've seen lots mm. of different videos on, on Facebook and Twitter. And they are incredible, yeah. aren't they? They are. I mean, it's really a hot glue gun on an XYZ like a plotter machine almost. The heat melts and squirts out the plastic and it places it in a, the appropriate place. And it's all controlled by a program. So the kind of the thing that, that made the kind of hobbyist 3D printing movement possible is actually about 10 years ago, um, they figured out a way to, a kind of a simple way of doing it. You can build them at home now. It, it feels futuristic still, I agree with you, but it actually is a relatively simple process, um, which is a good thing. And talk to me about this sort of pop-up production line, as it's being called, because um, I'm reading here that you're producing more than a 1,000 of these face shields every week. What happens mm -hmm. then? How are you getting them into the right hands and the right sort of NHS departments? So it's myself, another, someone else who knows about 3D printing, and also uh, Matthew Richards, who works at, uh, works at Cisco in Reading. He has some contacts in the NHS procurement sort of supply chain, so he could go and speak to people and go, look, do you need this? What is it that you need? Roughly, what should we think about when we, when we make them? Basically, we, we spoke to the NHS procurement department and said, look, we want to buy these things. We know what the situation is, so we're willing to accept them from a non-standard supplier if we if you can demonstrate to us how you make them and we can say that yeah that that seems that's sort of safe enough and uh, that it will that we're happy with how that how they're made um, and so that's that's basically the way we, we, we did it um, so when we'd gone a bit further in the process and actually we we had involved some people from the biomedical sort of manufacturing industry um, who were who were off work at the moment? <laughs> this is the nice thing at the moment. Everyone's kind of like a lot of people are off work, and so they have there's all this expertise is available. Mm. We engage with them and sort of worked out uh, an operating procedure which we could use to make sure that we kept the people making the kit safe and that we kept the face shields non-contaminated. We share, then shared that with the NHS to say this is how we're doing it. The procurement departments and the, the places, it's not just the NHS, there are some sort of, you know, smaller care organizations and things who also have an interest in it. And so they, we've been able to just show them, well, this is how we make them. If you think this is good enough for inspection control purposes, then, you know, just let us know and we'll send you a, we'll send you a box. Are you finding that all of these face shields that you are managing to make are being taken up? Have you got any sort of spares hanging around and you're struggling to find a home for them? No, we are actually, uh, there's there's a, a huge demand actually. I think nationwide I've seen things like hospitals wanting like 100,000 of them or something. You know, it's, we certainly, we can't uh, make them fast enough. Uh, they're, they're gone as soon as we make them.
Wow. How does it feel to be playing your part in that effort, even if it does seem like maybe a, a smaller part? Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's lovely. It, it feels really good. I mean, I'm just, I'm amazed and I feel very lucky that we can do this. I'm very impressed by how hard all the other people who have been involved, you know, a lot of volunteers from Cisco Reading and from, like I said, the Reading Making Community, um, EduMaker, a local 3D printing company. Um, they're all, you know, everyone's contributing their time for free. I feel very lucky because we managed to get the right people together with the right background or the right contacts to make this, set this up in like a week. It, it's kind That's of a, impressive. yeah. And I've just, I've just done a little bit of that. I've just helped to kick the idea off, but uh, I really can't take too much credit for the actual, all the work that's been done since. So uh, it's amazing. It's great that people can, you know, are getting together and are helping out like this. And speaking of the tech being used to fight coronavirus, what do you think of the idea of satellites and drones being used to deliver test kits during the pandemic? Well, Emily Gravestock from the UK Space Agency told our reporter Emma how the Harwell campus is helping to respond to the current situation. The UK Space Agency has once again teamed up with NHS England to understand their requirements for supporting both COVID-19 and future pandemics. And we've worked with our colleagues at the European Space Agency to release some of the funding from Business Application Space Solutions to support this on a fast contracting process. We've pre-authorised £2.6 million to allow contracts to go through quickly for people who have got ideas that are really close to being ready but need three to six months more work and a bit of funding just to get them over the line so they're ready to help save lives, members of the public, or to help support uh, health processes right across the world. Why do you want companies at Harwell to apply? We know that there's a huge amount of expertise in the Harwell campus. We're already working with many of the 105 space companies that are already based there. And we think that there are some cracking ideas that are either already in development on the Harwell campus or that could be a minor tweak to what people have already got in play that they could turn around and pivot to help meet the needs of COVID-19, but also of future pandemics, be that helping with logistics, using drones to deliver swabs or healthcare equipment, be it that they're looking at something to do with mental health and well-being that could support the public or maybe it's about modeling and how we can better manage future pandemics learning lessons from this current crisis that we're in i mean harwell is a fantastic bed it's it's europe's most concentrated space cluster and the european space agency and satellite applications catapults are there but really the expertise and the brains of people there is phenomenal you mentioned about the things that are happening at harwell and um mm people moving towards helping fight the coronavirus. Is there anything mm. that's already in process at the moment? There are a variety of companies who are doing uh, health-related things on the Harwell campus. In fact, there's a whole health cluster there who over the last couple of years have really grown um, in developing health-related services. I mean, there's a, there's a company that are based in Harwell uh, called Lantern who have developed a free app to help people observe social distancing and slow the spread of coronavirus. They're doing a fantastic job to support that. We know that RAL Space, who are based in Harwell, have already donated personal protective equipment to the NHS. But there are also a variety of other health companies uh, who have links to the Harwell campus who are doing things like air quality modelling and mapping, uh, which obviously the air quality hasn't dramatically changed uh, both in the UK and around the world because of COVID-19. There are people on campus who are supporting activities 
already uh, using satellite communications to enable people in more remote areas who don't have access to broadband to access services uh, using video conferencing and things like that so that firstly they can monitor health conditions such as diabetes or mental health but also and just as importantly they can connect with their families so that's also being helped through the Harwell campus at the moment. Now there's been plenty of talk in recent weeks about mental health and how we manage anxiety and our general well-being during these very strange times. Simon Riley is a student at Oxford Brooks who previously struggled with his mental health and he thinks the key is to open up and talk about how you're feeling, as he explained to Alex. I say I'd cope reasonably well. Uh, I'm quite lucky where I live that I can still exercise outside and get outside and like get out of the house for a few hours, but I'm quite lucky compared to people who live in other parts of the country, such as London, where I don't think you can pretty much leave your house, for example. Uh, basically, exercise and my assignments are like two things keeping me focused on that, so it's quite nice to have two things to kind of take away from the general negativity of what's going on at the moment. And I understand that you um, you experience low moods and depression, is that right? Uh, yeah, I did. But what would your advice to someone who, who struggles with similar issues during this, this lockdown? What would your advice be to keep their mood up? Well, I would say um, definitely try and do exercise or speak to your mates, but also uh, use the Every Mind Matters uh, digital resource. Um, so it's basically a mental health plan, which means if they go on the NHS website and look at it and use it, it can effectively um, help them look after their mental well-being which is a quite a big thing because obviously mental well-being is probably quite prominent and during what's quite a negative time for us all. Mm, and that's an interesting point. I know that, and obviously this is an unprecedented crisis, but I know that going into this, I feel that there was a more uh, f- a focused approach to mental health than there might have been even five, ten years ago. What have you made of people really uh, of what's been a very open dialogue nationally about mental health going into this crisis uh i'd say that in terms of an open dialogue i'd say that we knew i think we knew what was coming like you could see it it was going to affect us but i think because of how prominent and serious it actually is i think when you look at when you look at the news and the how hard the NHS workers are working and the circumstances are that you actually begin to realise that mental health affects everyone and it's very prominent as light as well. So it affects anyone from any age uh, across the country. So I think you appreciate things a bit more, which is why mental health is important, because once you appreciate those small things which add up to a big perception in your mind, then uh, I think it's good that people are... Like I know there are issues. Like I know, if can't not be able to leave your house and and not be able to do much is not fun. But I think life is more important, so mental health is more important because that affect, affects your way of living essentially. Yeah, look after yourself. Like it's we need to try and take the positives and enjoy life during this period. But obviously, it's down to us individuals to take that initiative. I think appreciating things will get us through it all because we're all effective together but we can all get through it together now you're going to hear from a guy called michael buick he's a furniture maker in oxford his partner is an intensive care nurse his dad is also high risk he's having chemo at the moment after a cancer diagnosis and so michael wanted to help with the issue of us lacking in personal protective equipment 
so he's very high risk. He's got a very low um, uh, immunity at the moment. So both those things, yeah, really made me um, think early on about the risks uh, to health professionals, but also to vulnerable groups. So there were big motivations for me to to think about how we can we can all help. Yeah, and when was the point that you actually thought, actually, there is a way I can help, and this is what I want to do? I, I think I woke up to it about the around the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth of March, um, from doing some reading and um, really realizing that a friend's mother had had all the symptoms and really badly for ten days, and heard that they weren't even going to test her for coronavirus, and so. I started to think, goodness, this this could have spread a lot more than we realise. Um, and I had a, a, about a week or ten days of worrying. You know, why aren't the government doing more? Why aren't we going into lockdown? And felt very, very relieved when we did finally have the lockdown announced. Um, and it was just a few days after that that I launched Donate Your PPE campaign. Um, I think it was up and running by the the 26th of March. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it took about a week to get everything. I bought the domain name and registered on the social media and um, reached out to contacts that I have in the furniture sector to see if people did have PPE in storage. And I, I did very quickly found a few people who had two or three boxes of masks or other things. So I realized that there was a lot out there in, in, in small amounts. And if we could have a campaign to crowdsource it, get the word out and get people to donate what they could, then we could hopefully get a very quick supply um, in case it was needed. And between the 26th of March and the 4th of April, uh, had uh, 40 offers come in, 40 donation offers come in, which was really encouraging. With this, I suppose, you know, it's great when big businesses come forwards and say they've got some PPE that they can spare. But do you think sometimes the smaller businesses, the sort of car garages or, or hair salons maybe that are sort of sitting on this equipment and it is spare at the moment are maybe thinking maybe there's not much that yeah. my few bits can do but i'm guessing for you it doesn't really matter how big the business is you just need whatever they've got absolutely if you've got unused protective equipment whether that's face masks gloves hand sanitizer um uh, you know, aprons as long as it's unused and packaged it's, it's going to be useful even if it's a, a box or two here or there so if you can donate it then the message is to, to visit donateyourppe.uk and use a simple form there to make your donation and then that will be followed up. And we're trying to make it as easy as possible for anyone who wants to donate to donate. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of businesses with small amounts out there, but together they all add up to make a big difference. Do you think if all those businesses we just talked about did donate, do you think there would be enough to kind of tackle this lack of PPE? Do you think that there is enough around if we all donated? <laughs> yes. I mean, it will definitely help. I mean, every every face mask and every um, piece of um, protective equipment that uh, a doctor or a nurse or other frontline staff, as a furniture maker, I use, use face masks when I'm in the workshop. That protects me against breathing and dust and things. It's a long-term hazard for my health, but it's nowhere near as dangerous as working in an intensive care unit with people with um, COVID-19. I think there is a lot out there in small amounts, and it can add up to making a huge difference. As to your question over will it be enough, I don't think anyone knows that because we don't know how long this will go on. We don't know what the total case cases will be like people also aren't sure what the supply 
PPE uh, will look like. On the other hand, there's a lot of factories converting to produce face masks and other protective wear. Um, and there's also really interesting efforts going on to get production going in the UK, not only bigger companies, but people working on can they use um, laser cutters to cut out simple masks, uh, visors that you can put together and, and other work like that. So yeah. we don't know how much there'll be, but we just have to get as much as we can, as quickly as we can. Michael Buick there chatting about his new PPE database. Next, we're going to hear about a new scheme which has been set up in Oxford to connect furloughed staff with volunteering opportunities. It's called the Furlough Exchange. And here's Emma chatting to Hannah Mackey from Team Oxford. We came together for the common purpose of looking at volunteering with a bit of a different slant. Um, everyone's got busy lives these days and uh, we're really trying to see how we can boost volunteering, but in a way that works for more people and uh, can you know, get more energy happening within the city. There's a lot of uh, organisations and charities and voluntary, there's a big voluntary sector in the, the city that can really benefit from this. So, yeah, we all kind of came together with the purpose of kind of giving that a real boost. Why do you think that it is important then for uh, various groups across Oxford to come together during this time? Since the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, um, we've launched our furlough exchange scheme, which is uh, encouraging people who might have been furloughed from their uh, main employment to, if they would like to offer the time that they've now got to uh, support charities and voluntary sector, um, to really stay, keep keep them afloat and keep them sustainable during this time, uh, it means that we can secure that sector for the future. How can people actually help with this? We're offering a bespoke service to connect people with opportunities that will really make use of their skills and talents and maybe it might be linked to what they do as a job. They can use their their experience for, to benefit other organisations. Um, yeah, that's how they can get in touch with that with those ways. How many people have actually put themselves forward to help? Oh, it's been amazing. Um, we've had a really good uh, response from the uh, webpage that we put up last week with the sign-up form. But yeah, it's, it's looking really good. We're really excited. I'm going to finish now with a project started by an Oxfordshire woman that allows hotels and people with second homes to donate them for free to frontline healthcare workers. Basically, it's all about giving them a bit of a holiday, a bit of rest and relaxation once the pandemic's over. Here's Alex speaking to the amazing Rachel Sherwood. We are asking people who own second homes or B&Bs or hotels or static caravans or castle, you never know, to donate future stays for frontline healthcare workers so that when we're through all this, the other side of the crisis, they can get proper rest and recuperation breaks in lovely places. So we know it's a hard time for them at the moment. We know that everyone's struggling in some way, shape or form. But people who can help have been incredibly generous in giving stays at their homes. And that's basically what we're doing. It's quite simple. Talk me through the numbers. What, what, what sort of numbers are we looking at? Uh, so far, I think we've got around 120 stays donated, which means we can help about 120 healthcare workers and their families after this is all over, which is just incredible. I mean, we've been going for about three weeks, and as these things tend to do, it's gaining momentum. So um, every day I get an email with at least one donation, and some days I get about nine. 
I think one day I got 19, which was just phenomenal. Um, and it's growing. So the word spreading and um, help and support of, of, of stations like uh, like uh, Jack FM is just fabulous because we can get the word out. And how did it start? How did it all sort of come about? Oh, God, I think it was when the nurses and healthcare workers started coming out of retirement. And I heard a number of about ten to 20,000 of them came out of retirement to, to work every day and, and basically put their lives at risk. And I felt I needed to do something. I'm not a nurse. Um, I don't have that skill set. But I have worked in hospitality for a while. And we have a second home ourselves. So we thought, let's give our second home. And then the idea kind of started there and spiraled. So I um, set up a Facebook page and then an Instagram account, started talking to people, and uh, and then on it went from there. Logistically, this must be quite a challenging thing. I mean, I know that these are sort of promises that are being made, but obviously this is some people's businesses that they're giving free rooms away and, and things like that. Um, yeah. How does that sort of work? Because we've got no idea when these people will be able to, to take that break, do we? Yeah, no, but my mantra is everything is figureoutable. And I think we'll figure this out some way, shape or form. So I'm keeping it as simple as possible. People are making pledges and they know that um, that you know, for the next three to six months, who knows how long, we're not going to ask them to honour those pledges. But when the time comes, we're asking them to nominate a hospital if they have a special connection to a hospital. And then we will contact that hospital and ask them to nominate some healthcare workers who they feel are most deserving for the stay. And we'll put those names in a hat and we'll pull them out. So the more donations we have when that time comes, the more we'll be able to pull out of that hat and it will be the most incredible feeling. So, yes, I'm keeping it simple, um, taking it one step at a time. And whenever someone sends a donation in, we send a pledge form back for them to fill in online. And then that's all they have to do. What does it mean to you to be able to help these people in this way? Oh my God, it's keeping me going. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it feels incredible. It is incredibly rewarding. Um, it's hard work. It's uh, something that is taking over my life at the moment, but in a really good way. And it's the something that I can do. I think everyone can do something, and that's the real message. You know, have a think about the one little thing you can do every day to help. And I know everybody's doing this. I see wonderfully heartwarming stories in the press. Um, And every little gesture counts. And this is my gesture. So that's what's keeping me going. And and they say, and you've heard this phrase, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Well, as a result, everything else in my life is getting done as well because I'm trying to squeeze it in around this charitable venture. But it it means a lot to me. And I think it will... It will hit home really when we start to gift these stays and we see the faces of these healthcare workers as they get the stays and they know they've got something to look forward to and some time on their own really just to indulge in doing nothing. Such a lovely thing to do. Well done, Rachel. And well done, everyone who's been doing their bit to support the NHS. That's it from the Jack News team for now. So give us a follow on Twitter if you want to keep up to date with all the latest coronavirus stories at Jack FM News. Stay safe, stay home and maybe try and stay out of the fridge. This lockdown diet is doing nothing for the summer bod.